0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR. And this week's podcast is going to look at the crises upon crises which are piling up in the Middle East. Last week, there was a, an important set of double talks in Vienna where foreign ministers met both to discuss Libya and the growing threat of ISIS in that country. And there was also, in the same meeting, a reunion of the International Syria Support Group, which are all the foreign ministers who are involved in the Syrian situation, where ISIS was also one of the topics under discussion. So... It's still not clear to me whether this was done in this way because John Kerry thought that it would be easier to solve the Syrian and the Libyan crisis if you link the two. Or if this was simply an attempt to show how screwed up the Middle East was by broadcasting all of the different problems at the same time. Or if there was some other reason. Does anyone have a,
1: a clue? Well, I don't think they were linked, Mark. I think it's, it, the, the crisis is so deep in and of themselves. It was simply a fact of probably the, the ministers were in the same place at the same time and they thought, let's, let's hit two birds with one stone. So that was Julian Barnes-Dacey, who's a senior policy fellow on ECFR's
0: Middle East and North Africa program, who's our number one Syria watcher. So we'll be coming back to him later to talk about the Syria parts. Also joining me down the line is Ellie Guerin-Meyer, who is another fellow on our Middle East and North Africa program. She specializes on Iran and has been looking at the talks through that prism. And sitting next to me here in London is Mattia Toaldo, who is another senior policy fellow, but his beat revolves uh, partially around Libya, which has become an increasingly fractious part of the world. So maybe, Mattia, we can start with you. What was the purpose of the talks in Vienna and and what came out of them?
2: The purpose was to coordinate the international response to the Libyan crisis. uh, Almost six months uh, after A peace agreement was signed and endorsed by the UN. Of course, since a lot of European countries uh, were joining the meeting, they were not just discussing ISIS or the political process, but they also discussed the refugee crisis. Uh, Libya is emerging once more as the second most important route for migrants into Europe. And actually, according uh, to the latest figures, it is the most important uh, since the closure of the Balkan route.
0: So you've just written a fantastic paper, Mattia, Intervening Better, Europe's Second Chance in Libya, which is, uh, I think, a reference to the fact that Europeans joined the Americans. They were leading from the front, Obama leading from behind um, a few years ago to uh, intervene to halt the massacre in Benghazi, but also uh, ultimately to force Muammar Gaddafi out of office. And since then... Rather than turning into a liberal democracy, the country has divided into three rival governments. There are dozens of armed groups around. And one of the things which these talks were uh, trying to do was to, to to show how important ISIS has become in uh, Libya. And I think that is actually one of the, the non-jokey reasons why Kerry wanted to, to link the two, because the battle against ISIS is one of the things which does run across these two theatres. And of course, this summit comes after
2: months of speculation over whether there would be a Western intervention in Libya against ISIS, as we have uh, in Syria or in Iraq. And the answer was no, there will not be a formal intervention. Uh, We already have an informal intervention, as we have said now for several weeks at ECFR, uh, with special forces from the US and several European countries actually on the ground in Libya, in different parts of Libya, working with different militias. But yes, ISIS is expanding in Libya, probably uh, a lot more than it is doing in in Syria or in Iraq. Uh, There is a formal link because uh, they're not just part of the same organization. Uh, It's also part of the leadership in Libya, which comes from from Syria or Iraq.
0: So what do you think their second chance could be? Is it because, I mean, one of the difficulties with all these things, it's the same uh, in Syria, which we'll talk a lot later, is you have lots of different interests at stake. So there's both uh, the European countries, some of whom are most concerned about migration, as you said. Uh, there are others that are very concerned about ISIS and the war on terror, and that's certainly a concern to the to the United States. Um, and then there is also the whole question of... The, the stability of a country which is a major source of oil to, to European countries. Um, and then there are some countries like Italy, for example, that have had long standing relationships and have had a Libyan investment in many of their companies as well. So there's a kind of economic uh, dimension to it. I mean, what do you think the second chance consists of? I would add to to
2: the three factors you outlined, a fourth one, which is credibility. In Libya, we do have a peace agreement contrary to to Syria, uh, and it's a peace agreement that was reached thanks to a lot of pressure from Europe and the US. And if one reads the final statement of the Vienna summit on Libya, it's mostly about supporting the political process that came out uh, of that agreement. Uh, And that's where Europe can do the most, uh, because both the ISIS threat and the migration problem come from Libya's collapsing economy or are fed by Libya's collapsing economy. Libya used to be one of the wealthiest African countries until just a few years ago, and now there is the real danger that if the government is unable to pay salaries, we might see a dramatic shift in favour of ISIS.
0: So, tell us a bit for those of us who've not been following Libyan politics on a daily basis, uh, a bit more about the current situation. Because there is this unity government as a prime minister uh, who's been appointed. Lots of European foreign ministers uh, have gone to visit him. But um, my understanding is he doesn't control very much of the country. In fact, he's kind of scared of leaving the airbase in which uh, he's based.
2: Yes, I would say that now Libya has two and a half governments. Uh, it has two, one and a half governments in Tripoli. Uh, one is the internationally recognized one, and another one is a rival government. So
0: Jonas put names on these governments. Um...
2: Uh, yes, uh, the, the internationally recognized government is headed by Fayez al Siraj. Uh, it was endorsed with a number of UN resolutions. Then the rival government is the Government of National Salvation. Uh, and it just controls some ministries. So who runs that? Uh, that's run by a coalition of uh, hardline Islamists, uh, different from ISIS. Uh, then there is a and rival. Who's backing them? Oh, just themselves, basically. Okay. Uh, whereas uh, in in the east of the country, there is the most serious uh, rival to the internationally recognized government. Uh, the This is a government controlled mostly by uh, General Khalifa Haftar and it's backed by Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. So a lot of the discussion in Vienna was on how to basically push uh, the West's best allies in the region to support uh, the internationally recognised government rather than this rival government in the East.
0: And why does the international community recognise Fayez Sarraj's government rather than Haftar's government?
2: Uh, fayez Sarraj government is the result of a long political process, uh, which was brokered by the UN Special Mission. It's supposed to be a unity government. Uh, It doesn't control the whole country. Yes, it's true. No one controls the whole country in Libya. But it does have all the ingredients to be a consensus government, whereas Haftar's government is more of a war cabinet.
0: And who controls the oil?
2: Uh, Well, basically, the oil is very much split in the country. We have maps as well uh, in our uh, memo and in our mapping project. Uh, The oil in the east of the country is controlled by groups close to Haftar. Uh, The oil in the west of the country is controlled by different militias, some of which are loyal to the government in Tripoli. So it's a complicated situation but in which the Europeans actually have a lot of uh, leverage, Uh, maybe because uh, the focus is on the economy, which is something that the Europeans know about and have instruments to act on. Uh, And then the other focus is, of course, on ISIS. I think the big decision in Vienna was not to intervene uh, with Western forces, but rather to partially lift the arms embargo, which is now in place on Libya, uh, to make an exemption for the recognised government. And this was a crucial uh, decision which Kerry endorsed uh, with with a specific statement.
0: So it would be good to, to come back to some of the specific things that you think that the international community can do. But maybe before that, we could hear a bit from you, Julian and, and Ellie, about um, how you see the... Well, to what extent you think there are links between, particularly as far as ISIS is concerned, between Libya and and uh, and Syria and Iraq, um or whether they're purely local factors which are driving
1: the kind of rise of of ISIS in in Libya? No, I think they're linked in the sense that that clearly ISIS has is sent. Uh, senior people from Syria to Libya to try and establish a foothold there. They're linked in the sense in that the ISIS project in Syria and Iraq has attracted a, a broader pan-regional following that is leading to the establishment of splinter groups across the region. So so long as uh, ISIS appears to have... Um, a, a, a position in Syria and Iraq, so long as it continues to, to push forward or, or, or creates a perception that it's pushing forward. And today we saw new bombings in, in Western Syria for the first time in the regime heartlands. So long as it has that kind of aura, it's able to attract followers elsewhere in the region. So I think there is that, that, that linkage of personnel, but also more importantly, probably the ideological linkage. But they are different fights. And I think it's, uh, Mattia has very much been talking about the, the local conditions in which ISIS are, are, are stepping in and which is helping them grow. And I think it's important to recognize that there are distinct conditions in each country which gives ISIS and its followers a platform to, to, to move forward. And it, it's, it's a need to address them in isolation, to address the different, different political economic structures uh, that are fueling these crises across the regions, which I think will actually lead to success, rather than grouping them all together and saying this is one larger war on terror and, and necessitates one, one narrow fight. These are very distinct battles.
0: And to what extent is the surge of ISIS in Libya a response to the fact they're being pushed back in Iraq and in um, and Syria? I think it's more what Julian was saying, that uh, Syria
2: served as a model for a number of Libyan jihadists. And in fact, the first uh, core group of ISIS in Libya was the Batar Brigade, which was this group of Libyans who had fought first in Iraq, then in Syria, and then decided to to take the fight home uh, in Libya. I think there are crucial differences, as Julian was saying. Libya is not... uh, part of the sectarian fight between Sunnis and Shiites, because there are no Shiites in, uh, in Libya. And also the other big difference is that whereas the former regime uh, officers from Saddam's army are fighting alongside ISIS in Iraq, in Libya, we're seeing the opposite phenomenon, which most of the uh, Gaddafi loyalists are actually fighting against ISIS.
0: Right. So is that why you've been so quiet, Ellie? This is a Shia-free zone.
3: (laughs) No, I was actually going to add from an Iranian vantage, another country where ISIS is deepening its hold and pockets is in Afghanistan, where, again, the Sunni-Shia dynamic isn't the driving factor, but rather it's the breakdown of state institutions and governance. And there's a vacuum that is now being exposed not only by groups like Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but increasingly ISIS. And I think that is the common thread, you know, overall uh, for, for these countries is this absence of um, good governance and and state apparatus which are functioning providing services but again the local dynamics and the the local politics that needs to be addressed to overcome that are quite different when it's Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan and, and Libya.
0: Okay so if we think about the different problems that we're trying to deal with you talked a bit about one which is the war against ISIS and essentially there the main solution seems to be uh, special forces intervention lifting the arms embargo so that Uh, they can fight things. In your paper, you talk about trying to find um, Libyan Peshmerga. (laughs) Um, How's that going? Uh, Well, that's more or less what's (laughs) happening now
2: on the ground, that the US and some European countries are out there in Libya uh, looking for the equivalent of the Iraqi uh, Peshmergas. So, Uh, single-armed groups to which they can promise some kind of de facto independence and weapons in exchange for fighting IS. This is having a very uh, negative impact on the political process because, of course, single-armed groups have no incentive now to join in a power-sharing agreement since they can get all uh, the benefits uh, from just trying to become the Peshmergas of Libya.
0: Right. So you think in your paper that we should launch a a CSDP mission, which is a common security and defence policy mission, an EU mission. What would that do? Uh,
2: Well, a lot of things. Uh, In conjunction, of course, with the exemption on the arms embargo and the creation of a joint command, a CSDP mission can create all the infrastructure that is around the security sector. So uh, a hierarchy, a chain of command, Uh, the training of the police forces, the building up of the judiciary, all things that have been missing in Libya, not just since the fall of Gaddafi, but in many cases uh, were absent even under Gaddafi.
0: Right. A lot of your papers talking about the, the politics of this and how you can kind of try and help uh, empower the the officially recognised government, stop creation of parallel structures and I suppose that follows on a bit from what you were just saying about the, the different militias. Maybe we could end by looking at the, the migration crisis because um, there's news stories about how there could be up to 800,000 Libyan migrants readying to, to make their way across the central Mediterranean route to Europe and in Italy, for example, they are talking about the idea of having a deal with Libya like the Turkey deal. And in, in fact, in some ways, the, the precedent for the Turkey deal was the old deal which Italy brokered with, with Gaddafi when he was in power. But how can you have a, a, a deal with a country that where there isn't a sovereign government? I mean, the reason it worked with Gaddafi to, was because he was a pretty... Uh, brutal leader who had control of the country Erdogan has all sorts of problems but he does run quite a tight ship and and he knows how to to have his uh, will uh, seen uh, in in, in, in the implementation of policies in different areas. How on earth is uh, do you need to have three different agreements with each of the different governments with Libya or how would that work? So first of all
2: let's talk just one minute about the numbers because this these huge figures of 800,000 1 million people uh, ready to come to Europe keep coming up. There is no evidence to support this. IOM has uh, identified only 200,000 uh, migrants in Libya. We're talking mostly about African migrants who use Libya as a destination country uh, because Libya is still relatively wealthier than the rest of the continent. And then uh, there are 400,000 IDPs, internally displaced people, but it's unlikely that they will come to Europe. Until now, uh, Libyan IDPs have remained within Libya uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and we are now at the end of May, and still the number of people who have come from Libya is far below. Uh, 800,000 and it's even slightly uh, lower than last year when the total number was 150,000 so what can we do first of all don't panic uh, we're not going to see a, well, new... I think it's a bit too late for that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 keep your cool look at the data uh, there could be a crisis that could spark big numbers, but the crisis is still not there. So we should just monitor if the crisis comes. The second thing we can do is redesign existing European operations. First of all, Operation Sophia uh, to uh, work. So with operation
0: Sophia. That's the the human. The yeah, the anti-smuggling operation and, yeah.
2: in in the Mediterranean. Basically, now that's conceived as an only EU operation, but what we propose and what's being discussed also by the EU is to include also the Libyan government and the Tunisian government and work uh, on more, uh, let's say, African ownership of the process. And that's actually the part of the Italian treaty with Gaddafi that worked. The fact that you have joint patrols, so there is a shared interest. Uh, and a shared definition of the goals uh, of the policy. For sure, we cannot replicate with Libya what we have with Turkey, not just because Libya doesn't have a single government, but also because Libya is not a party to the Geneva Convention and the conditions of refugees in Libya are appalling.
0: Okay, so do you think, just a final question on Libya before we pivot to to Syria, that we are going to see... So you're basically saying people should calm down, that we're not going to see... Uh, Hundreds of thousands of people coming across the Mediterranean, dying in the Mediterranean again, and that that, um, the the route isn't simply just going to shift from the Balkans to the central Mediterranean route.
2: Unfortunately, people are dying in the central Mediterranean, even if the flow is not very high, because simply it's a more dangerous route. Uh, so we should step up search and rescue efforts. Yes, we shouldn't panic. I think uh, the Italian panic is more due to the situation with Austria, which is effectively closing uh, the border rather than uh, with uh, flows from, from Africa. The flow is the same as last year. The problem is that Italy fears that all those 150,000 uh, expected to come from Libya will stay in Italy, which is already overwhelmed by uh, a backlog from recent years
0: okay well we'll come back and look at that again but why don't we move to to syria now so the the talks on syria have gone from kind of pleasant mountainous um european city to pleasant mountainous european city from geneva to munich to vienna um what's happening on the substance julian
1: well, the, the situation on the ground is that the ceasefire, the cessation of hostilities has, has effectively unraveled. And, and last week was a desperate attempt led by, I think, by the US in particular to try and salvage it to try and get something back on track. And the Russians and the Americans and the wider international Syria support group came together and they committed themselves to not just getting the the cessation of hostilities back on track, but actually to try and extend it, to formalise it into a ceasefire. They talked about a desire to to start doing airdrops of humanitarian aid if the regime didn't consent to, to allowing more in by land. But but it, it it's it's so detached from what's happening on the ground, and and you you see, um, increasingly it, it it seems to be a lost cause in terms of salvaging the ceasefire. The violence has escalated significantly around the northern city of Aleppo. Damascus, there's severe fighting humanitarian access is now backed down to about 5% of what it was or what it should be compared to 40% last month. The Russians are bombing strategic arteries that move into Aleppo. It, 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 it's, a, it's a wider breakdown, and there does not seem to be the appetite or the commitment of international players to move beyond these, these political commitments to take the kind of, of, of steps and exert the kind of leverage that they would need to do on both sides uh, to get this back in track. So, Ellie,
0: how does it look from, from an Iranian perspective?
3: Well, I think the Iranians in particular over the last month have taken a, a few hits, substantial hits, in terms of fatalities uh, near Khantman, uh, from Jabhat al-Nusra forces, who, from the Iranian perspective they feel have benefited from the ceasefire. They feel that the opposition, and in particular Javad al-Nusra specifically, has made advances both in terms of territorial gains and also uh, creating setbacks for Iranian um, military uh, advances in, in support of Damascus and Assad's regime. So they're not happy with the situation. And actually, now the the issue of the battle for Aleppo is becoming an increasing uh, political debate in the domestic arena, where none of the political factions and groups want to be blamed for the ones who who lost Syria. And there seems to be more support both in the public sphere and also in the leadership sphere for making a push on the military um, side and supporting the IRGC activities on the ground in Syria, which, again, doesn't spell, um, you know, real positive um, outlook for the political track, because it looks like they are going to consolidate their forces and use the recent losses to persuade the russians that a greater military push is needed on the ground in Aleppo against groups like Jabhat al-Nusra which russia and the Iranians agree um, are a terrorist faction that need uh, that need to be uh, marginalised, particularly in the political track. So the Iranians aren't so happy about the way ceasefire has gone, and they're trying to now uh, push forward with more of a um, military um, force in the in the coming weeks.
0: So we're in this kind of slightly puzzling situation where the the ceasefire actually lasted longer and was more effective than anyone thought it was going to be. But now is kind of uh, unravelling um, more quickly than people thought it would do once uh, they come to believe that maybe this time was going to be different. J- Julian, do you want to both sort of explain a bit more about why you think it was more successful originally and then um, uh, whether there might be any hope of of, um, uh, of rescuing something from it now?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, I think the the key element was the fact that actually external players uh, demonstrated an ability to to use the leverage that they've acquired over the last five or six years. Every fighting group in Syria, from the government itself to the different warring militias on both sides, is dependent on an external patron. And there was an ability for those patrons to turn off the tap of support to a certain extent and to force, force both sides into line. And I think that was combined with a with a broader sense of fatigue, a broader sense of, of exhaustion with the way the conflict was going, I think the problem was is that, that, that none of those parties, whether regional or domestic, actually saw the ceasefire as an end game. Everyone saw it as an opportunity to regroup, to consolidate. Um, expecting that actually there would be a further fight down the line and this would just be a pause, a timeout for, for what was was to come, an ability to show good face in, in, in the international community. And I think that, that the real problem was the, the inability to to, to accompany the, the initial opening, the ceasefire, with dramatic change on the ground, whether it had been significantly increased humanitarian access or Or probably more importantly, uh, some kind of meaningful political track that could actually help this process to gain further steam. And there, the problem is twofold. And it's the one, uh, the continued inability of the different sides to agree, agree over the fate of Assad. That is the zero sum bottom line question that remains a key point of division between every war, between the two parties. No one is prepared to budge. And if you can't move around that, Uh, you're effectively locked into an ongoing conflict. The second problem is uh, the dilemma with the opposition, whereby uh, there is a significant presence of of al-Qaeda, not just in terms of of ISIS, but actually more importantly, Jabhat al-Nusra, which has important alliances with more moderate groups. And that has presented the Russians and the regime and their backers with a justification uh, to be able to break the ceasefire. And and the the opposition on their part have not been willing uh, to distance, and distance themselves from Jabhat al-Nusra. The Americans and others have talked about trying to create some physical separation between Nusra and more moderate opposition groups, but that has quite simply proved impossible given the, the extreme linkages on the ground between all of the different fighting groups. And so in that kind of messy di- dynamic, which is based on this attempt to kind of divide between the good and the bad guys, between the good opposition and the bad opposition, it all, it all becomes too messy, really.
3: Can I just maybe add to that quickly on the on the from the Iranian vantage point, this inability to essentially physically separate uh, the the Western backed U.S. backed opposition forces from Jabhat al Nusra uh, is a key issue for them, and they see it as a real failure by the United States to deliver on what was agreed in in October. And there is also a sense from the Iranian vantage that. Um, the opposition backers, particularly the Qataris and the and the Saudis, are essentially dragging their feet during this uh, cessation of hostilities until the the outcome of the U.S. elections are known. Because they have the from the Saudi vantage, there's this perceived um, outlook that the that the U.S. will change policy under a new presidency, and that they can use extra support, added military support from the U.S. to really push back against Assad. Meanwhile, Iran has stuck to the line that Assad must stay, at least for a transitional phase. And there has been no movement on on the Assad question from the Iranian side, which again has kept the political track at a deadlock right now.
0: And how um, is the integration of the Iranians into the formal process working out? Because that was one of the big problems with the original Geneva process, was that uh, Iran was not able to take part in it.
3: Well, I think the the original um, the original misgivings about not being included were in a way corrected in October when Iran was brought into the negotiations. However, since then, the 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 growing perception in Tehran is that the political track is now a U.S. Russian driven one, which is probably a correct perception to have, really. But I think one of their biggest worries is the way that the ceasefire in Syria was negotiated between Russia and and the US, which in a way uh, marginalized Iran's role. And um, some say Iran wasn't even consulted in how the ceasefire was going to work out, which again fuels this uh, perception in Iran at the moment that uh, the Russians made a mistake in the way they agreed to the ceasefire and that it's created a setback for Iran and Assad and in a way for the Russians as well. So it's made them question the the political wisdom in Moscow go slightly Um, but i think they are they, they seem confident that they can bring the russians back on board to a more forceful military uh track now
0: so what would that involve the more forceful military track
3: well there's definitely this issue of battle for aleppo that is going to i think the iranians are on the march to uh, redouble forces and efforts to um, ensure a that the that the territories that were taken from them by forces like al rostra are retaken and b to make sure that they they they're also si- they're almost setting up this battle for aleppo is where the the big questions on the region are going to be decided so in a way they are pushing for Extra air support uh, from the Russians in Aleppo and a more public military commitment um, to supporting Damascus and um, and the Iranians on the ground
1: Julian, how do you see this ending well I think we're unfortunately there is no end in sight and and, and what we're really looking at is a, a new cycle of, of devastating escalation I think everyone is now. Publicly committing themselves to a political process but seeing the means to achieving that through, through upping the military elements of the fight and I think we expect to see as, as Ellie was talking about further Iranian and Russian military uh, action on the ground meanwhile the backers of the opposition, the Saudis, the Turks are, are doing their own elements, the Americans have been providing the opposition with increased weaponry over the course of the siege fire so we're looking at a new round of escalation the like of which we've seen for five or six years now where it's been this cycle of escalation and Counter escalation, and really, it doesn't point to any hope of a way out or of a breakthrough, but of a of a deepening uh, sinking in, 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 into kind of the depths of, of breakdown and conflict. And I think, in many respects. This may now be the last chance of, of any political solution that that could hold Syria together as a state. I think that, given the fragmentation, the the effective uh, uh, break up of Syria in terms of different power centers, it's looking increasingly, almost incredibly, hard to imagine a scenario whereby you, you don't have a further escalation. A new year or two years of conflict as it took to as we've seen over the last two years in terms of the, the process from the Geneva 1 to the Geneva 2 to finally what we're seeing now at the end of which there's nothing to hold together again and we see Syria breaking apart. So what happened to these hopes that you and other people had that
0: you know Russia didn't want to get bogged down there that having had their successful operation that you know they would try and avoid the kind of Vietnam situation. Kerry definitely seemed very uh, willing to make peace on Russian terms and to to be more flexible on the Assad question than than they've been before, so all of that kind of disappeared.
1: Well, I think ultimately no one was prepared to to bend on on their core demands. I think the US probably was, and I think Kerry, as you say, has expressed some willingness to be more uh, loose on the Assad question, but but he's been unable to deliver. Uh, the opposition and its regional backers, who continue to to drive a lot of the 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 elements on the ground, and the Americans aren't able to control that process. And given the pressures that the Americans are facing within D.C., Obama and D.C. in terms of the pushback against Russia and so on and so forth, no one has been prepared to bear. No one has been prepared to to, to move on from those those zero sum ambitions. And I think ultimately the the, the regional and the, the the domestic actors who who are quite happy to maintain the fight. Have been able to to trump uh, the american russian attempts to drive a political process forward
0: and what happens with Stefan de Mistura and his attempts at, at, at doing these kind of talks and the mediations he, he, he has he given up now
1: well there is there is this last attempt that we 're seeing now to try and to try and salvage something and, and uh, given the initial success of the ceasefire, given the fact that actually you saw wide support for it on the ground within Syria – Let's not write it off. And I think, you know, if the only other option is a full collapse into renewed violence, new escalation, and so on and so forth, I think there is this desire by by the likes of de Mistura and even some of those foreign ministers in Vienna last week to try and salvage this, to try and get something back on track. And I think de Mistura is working hard to try and bring the different groups together. I think there's an initial focus on the humanitarian element. It remains to be seen whether the Russians as you say, aware of of the the threat that they may be drawn into a longer-term conflict that bogs them down, may actually do something on the humanitarian front now, force Assad to give way in in an attempt to to salvage something. So there are possibilities, and they're pushing hard. Dumas is at that. As you say, Kerry is extremely committed to this. Um, It's it's worked once, perhaps it can work again. Uh, But the odds at the moment, and and, and given the collapse into renewed violence uh, within Syria, suggest that it's it's a real long shot. Okay, so
0: um, we will carry on visiting this. I'm sure it'll be the, the battleground for many more podcasts in the future. Um, and uh, thank you very much to all of you for, for trying to help us make sense of it. There's one more thing we need to do, though, on this podcast, which is to return to our much-missed and frequently uh, honoured it by its absence rather than its presence bookshelf
1: segment. What is on your bookshelf? Julian, I'm I'm actually taking time out in terms of my reading to read a novel for a change, some fiction. I'm um, I'm reading a book called In the Light of What We Know by um, Zia Haider Rahman, which is the story of a, um, of, of, a ba- of a of a British person of Bangl- Bangladeshi origin and his Pakistani friend as they try and navigate the post nine eleven post-financial crisis world and to be honest i'm not quite sure where it's going to take me i mean it's this absorbing conversation between the two of them set between bangladesh afghanistan and london um dealing with these themes of this changing world that we've seen over the last 15 years but i'm just beginning it so so maybe i'll come back to it in 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 a podcast down the line and actually tell you what it's about okay what about you
0: matthew
2: well, like most uh, tube passengers in London, I've read the trilogy by Elena Ferrante. and <laughs> uh, But I just finished reading a, a book by Luke Baker. Uh, it's called Dateline uh, Baghdad. It's an interesting love story among two journalists in Baghdad at the time of the Abu Ghraib scandal. So it took me back many, many years. Uh, but actually, <laughs> it was... Uh, I read it while I was watching news about Iraq, so it was quite
0: an interesting reading. What about you, Ellie?
3: Um, I've got a short piece and a, and a long piece. The longer piece, which I'm still going through, is it's called uh, "Forces for Good." It's about practices of high-impact nonprofits by Crotchfield and Grant, which goes through a series of U.S. Um, social entrepreneurial initiatives from 2005 and 2012 to see how the recession impacted um, uh, high-impact entrepreneurship in the U.S. And the second piece is uh, uh, a piece on yourmiddleeast.com, which is five films that will help you understand the modern Arab world. And it's just short snippets of um, some really great films from the Arab region, which um, are actually very cool, and I look forward to watching some of them.
0: So on my bookshelf, there's one thing I have read, which is uh, Mathias' paper, Intervening Better, Europe's Second Chance in Libya. And there's another one, which I've just started, uh, but I'm enjoying a lot. It's a book by uh, a friend of mine, Joshua cooper Ramo, who runs... Uh, he's the co-CEO of Kissinger Associates. And it's called The Seventh Sense. And what he tries to do in that is to... Make sense of how the world of networks and hyperconnectivity functions, and he looks at the forces that unite such disparate events as uh, the rise of ISIS, the rise of Donald Trump, the uh, rise of, uh, of uh, uh, <clears throat> cybercrime and internet warfare in, in different places. And his basic idea is that. Uh, we're going through a period where a lot of the rules which uh, govern the world no longer seem to apply, that the more we fight terror, the more terrorism we create, the more we try and use quantitative easing and other methods to to deal with the the global financial crisis, the the worse the the economic outlook uh, becomes. And his uh, explanation for that is that um, this period of hyperconnectivity is as disruptive as the industrial revolution was at the time of the industrial revolution Nietzsche apparently said that you needed to have a sixth sense to understand what was going on in the world and the people who had a sixth sense would would, would see things differently and understand how to how to prosper and um, he looks at some of the lessons of people who have a seventh sense now which is the people who look at a load of empty cars and they see Uber rather than just empty car seats and those who look at people's spare rooms with no one sleeping in them and they they can imagine Airbnb and people who looked at Donald Trump who didn't just see a strange man with a weird haircut but saw a potential political force from his 5 million uh, followers. Um, So there's much uh, to think about in that book. So that brings this podcast to an end. Um, If you enjoyed it, Please post it on your Twitter or Facebook page or even better, write a comment on ours, which is facebook.com slash ECFR. Rate us on iTunes, on SoundCloud. Write a review about us. Write a postcard to your family and friends. And uh, also tell us what you think of it. You can always get me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Mattia Toaldo... Ella Ellie Garin Maya Julian Barnes Daisy and myself Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katharina Bertel Azinaro.